Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We are so happy you chose to join us. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit highlawnbaptistchurch.org for more information. But for now, grab your Bibles, go all the way to the back, and join us as we walk through Revelation. Well, good evening. We are back after Ash Wednesday in our Revelation study. We're in session seven, and we're talking about the church at Sardis. But again, before we go into that, before we delve into Scripture, we always want to go first in a season of prayer. So let's bow our hearts together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this precious book. We thank You for being a God who has given it to us, who loved us enough not, not only to save us and to redeem us, but also to give us a purpose to entrust to us this most sacred of missions that through the work that you've left to us, others may see your mercy, others may see your love at work. So help us now to consider these things above ourselves, to embrace one another in love, and to come to you as our Heavenly Father. Lord, receive now um, our thanks and praise, as well as praise in advance for what you're going to do as we commit this time and ourselves into your hands without any reservation. And it is in the matchless name of Christ we pray. Amen. Sardis, uh, go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word to Revelation chapter 3, opening with verse 1. But just by way of quick review, because it's, it's been a week since we were here, this is the second part of the book. The first was the image of the risen Christ. And now we're in what Jesus tells John to write down as that which is, which of course is the seven churches. And each time that we read one of these letters that Jesus himself dictates to the Apostle John, there's different areas of meaning that we need to consider. What about the name of the church and the history of the city that it's located in is important that Jesus is using as he tries to, to proclaim truth to the people that's in this particular church? What is the title that Christ chooses for himself and how does that relate to them? What is the commendation? What are they doing right? What is the concern? What are they doing wrong or that they need to, to bolster? What is his instruction on correcting them to go in the path that he has laid out for them to go. And lastly, what is the promise to the overcomer? And there is, there is one more that I'll throw at you, and again, it's controversial, and it is very much open to individual interpretation, and that is a, a potentially prophetic image of the universal church captured in the local churches. For instance, if they were in any other order, because it doesn't, the order that they're presented in kind of makes sense from a geographic standpoint, but it kind of doesn't at the same time. So one of the thoughts behind why the, this particular list of churches are in this particular order is that each church, the problems that it, face, that it faces and the, the instructions that Jesus has for it, has to do with the life cycle of the capital C church, the church universal. 
beginning in Ephesus as the, the church of the apostles and, and going forward. But again, that's up for interpretation. So let's take a look at the city of Sardis, which is our next one at the beginning of chapter 3. This is the gymnasium of Sardis. As it currently exists, it's in ruin, and there is building projects around it trying to reclaim it a little bit, restore it. Uh, gymnasium in this case doesn't just mean the gymnasium like we think of a gym. It, it doesn't just mean the place where you play basketball or where you learn physical education. It can refer to a school in its entirety. Now this is a very Hellenistic Greek type of culture in which they study no fewer than four things. There are four essential elements common to every Greek school at this point in time. Gymnastics, meaning physical education, how you use your body. Philosophy, linguistics, read, writing, uh, we'll, we'll, uh, I'm sorry, there's more than four. There's also arithmetic, and believe it or not, music. All of those were required courses during this time. And this is what remains of one of these types of academies. This is also Sardis Hill. Below it, at the foot there in the valley, you can see the, the present city of Mensa in Turkey. But as is going to become pretty apparent here, Sardis was renowned because its image projects invulnerability. Just by looking at it, you would think that it was, a, it was a fortress complex that you would think could not be taken down. And that's part of what Jesus is going to actually kind of stick it to them with in just a second. We're still in this location in Asia Minor, still towards the far west of it. And this is why the prophetic insight comes into play. That blue line that you see up there starts in Ephesus where the green arrow is and worms around, drawing into the ocean, back onto the mainland and into the, where the red arrow right is right now, which is the city of Sardis. But there are two closer, faster, well-traveled trade routes, both of which um, follow a river. So if if this book, if these letters were laid out just because of the geography, the order of which a messenger would be passing them out as he went from church to church to church, Sardis now no longer makes sense because it's an easier reach from either Ephesus or Smyrna than it is to go all the way from the coast, circling back to the coast, and then farther west. For all intents and purposes, it should have either been the second or the third, depending on which trade route, church that was covered. But anyway, let's keep moving. Uh, Sardis was the gateway further west along those trade routes. The next, uh, the next one further downstream would be Philadelphia. Just quickly about the history of Sardis. The word Sardis itself, the meaning again is under conjecture because it's been lost to time. Uh, and that's the way that it is with most of these Lydian cities that were converted. Um, they're under, by this point in time, a third or fourth owner. So the original wording, the original meaning, and in the case of the previous one, uh, Phrygia, the uh, excuse me, Pergamum, the original name has actually been lost to time. 
It's kind of like London, uh, which is what we call the capital city of, of England right now, during the Roman occupation was Londinium. And when it was nothing more than a, a horse stop along the bank of the Thames River, it may have had another, meaning, another word altogether. We don't know. But what has come to us from traditional teachings, uh, Sardis at this point in time literally translates to the red ones. And it refers to a type of semi-precious gem now that was very precious at one point in time. Uh, it's referred to either as sardonyx or carnelian. It was actually used in the breastplate of the high priest of Israel. And it was, it was a particular use to royal houses back in this day because even though it was a gemstone, it was a very hardy stone. It's kind of like jade that you could carve things out of it. So many times a king would use a large piece of sardis stone as a very decorative way of putting his royal seal on it. They would carve it out and it could take the pressure in that kind of gem cutting, that kind of intricate cutting. This city was also formerly the, oh, well, but again, part of the meaning of the name that we're going to pick up on as we study this letter, Sardis stones were once very precious gems. And then all of a sudden, before first century, um, they became quite common and lost their value. It would be like someone discovering a huge gold deposit somewhere out in the western United States. Gold is set at a certain price beforehand, but as it becomes less and less rare, its price drops. So you had a name once, you were valuable, but now you are worthless. Anyway... This is, a, this is what a Sardis stone is, to the best of our knowledge. It is a blood red with orange flecks stone. This city was the former capital of the Lydian Empire because it was a very defensible position. It sits on top of a plateau where three sides of it are nothing but a sheer cliff. We suspect that it was uh, founded sometime before 2000 BC. It was really renowned for great wealth and trade. Lots of gold mining in this area, not to mention precious stones. Uh, it was well known for red dye textiles. Remember, in another case, we had purple dye. Well, here it's red, which is another reason behind the name. And the Lydian gold statar, I believe that's how it's pronounced, was actually regarded as the first minted coin on the planet. Money came about because of this city or through this city. So if you know of someone who is an accountant or somebody that's in investing or somebody that's in some form of, of commerce, this is where they get their start. And again, if you just look at the place, it looks invulnerable. It's very naturally defensible. You can only climb it through one gently sloping side, and the rest you have uh, cliffs on that are next to impossible to climb, or at least they look that way. The cliffs themselves are made out of clay. And over time, as it gets slammed with water and then dries in the Turkish sun, it becomes brittle, it breaks off, it erodes, it forms large cracks. Unfortunately, very climbable cracks. So back in 549 B.C., 
King Cyrus of Persia, the guy that captured Babylon and the guy that also gave uh, the rights of the people of Israel to rebuild Jerusalem, goes into a, a fierce campaign against King Croesus of Lydia, with this being his capital city. And he'd routed the Lydians, who went back to Sardis as a defensive standpoint to kind of flee away from Persia and hold it out until they could receive some backup. Cyrus, after a 14-day-long siege, offers a reward to anybody that can find a way to scale those cliffs because he notices that King Croesus is overly confident in the city's natural defenses. If we can find a way to scale that rock, we can take the city. King Croesus had taken all of his, at least the, the vast majority of his troops, and positioned them right at the city gates, right in the front where that hillside is, so that, uh, so that Cyrus's troops couldn't come up. So he offers a monetary reward for anybody that can find a way up, and one of the Lydian soldiers drops his helmet down the side of the cliff and climbs down to get it. And as he's climbing down, the Persian soldiers see him. And they end up climbing the same route that that soldier had taken to get his helmet. They conquer the city by night that very evening, which is where the phrase comes from, like a thief in the night. Now you'd think that they learned their lesson, but they don't. They were captured again by Persia. They would later on in 501 BC be captured by Ionia. 334, 200 years later, they would be conquered by Alexander the Great. Uh, 100 years later in 214, they would be captured by the Seuclid Empire after Alexander's death. So they don't learn their lesson. Generation after generation passes and somehow they forget about the conquests and they think of themselves as invulnerable. The cliffs will save us and they never do. The same thing happens over and over again. So to say that you're from Sardis or to say that you are Sardun back in this point in time in the first century AD was to, uh, to say that someone was, had made a promise without value or that they had glory that was unjustified, or that they had a good appearance, but no substance underneath it, appearances without truth behind it, confidence without substance, and a prelude to ruin. Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty look before a fall. That's the idea. The city was destroyed by an earthquake in 17 AD, and rebuilt by the Roman Emperor Tiberius. And when he rebuilt it, it became a center of protection of trade between the Eastern Empire and the Western Empire. It actually became so wealthy and so populous that it became a proconsul of Rome until it was sacked by Persia, and it lost basically all of its influence in one fell swoop. Rome had defeated Persia in, in, this, in this war back in 615, but unfortunately, the damage that was done remained. Later on, it was captured and conquered by the Turks in 1402 
And today it's called Sart in Turkey. Again, it was a very Greek Hellenistic culture. That's the pantheon of gods they worshipped. That's the style of architecture that they built. Uh, the patron deity was called Sibylle back in the day. It's regarded as Diana in the Greek pantheon. And this is also the place where King Midas's reputation came about. This is where that story begins. Because this place was so wealthy, anything that the emperor or the king of Lydia touches turns to, turns to gold. In fact, it said in the end of that story, when King Midas is begging the gods to have mercy on him because he can't eat because when he touches food, it turns into gold. He can't drink because as soon as the water hits his lips, it turns into gold. So he's begging the gods for mercy and they tell him to go wash in the river that's surrounding the city. And that's the mythological reason why the gold was found in that region, especially with, along the banks of that river. So we are now in the text, Revelation chapter 3, starting with verse 1. The letter to the church at Sardis. This is probably one of the most, probably the second most scathing rebukes in all of Scripture talking about a church. It begins, Write unto the angel of the church in Sardis, thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Be alert, be watchful, and strengthen what remains, which is about to die. Exercise the muscle before it atrophies. That one remnant within you that is still going. For I have not found your works complete before my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you are not alert, if you're not watchful, if you're not careful, I will come like a thief in the night. Jesus actually uses that phrase in other places in Scripture. And if you, and you have no idea what hour I will come upon you. But you have a few people in Sardis, in some of your translations, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their clothes, and they will walk with me in white because they are worthy. We're going to talk a little bit more about that phrase in just a second. In the same way, the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes, and I will never erase his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name, confess his name, more literally, before my Father and before His angels. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. May God add His blessing to the reading of His Word this evening. So again, taking a look at the elements of the letter, he begins with the phrase, the title of himself, the one who has the seven spirits and the seven stars. And as we've talked about beforehand, there's a lot of codes, a lot of symbolism in the book of Revelation but every code, every symbol is explained either in this book or somewhere else in the Bible. And if we turn back to Revelation chapter 1, when we take a look at the seven spirits of God who are in the midst of the throne room of God and the seven stars, uh, Isaiah brings out that this is not seven different spirits or seven ghosts or seven different souls, that this is the Holy Spirit of God with His sevenfold ministry. So we're talking about Jesus in possession of 
the other person of the Godhead, who's in communion with Him, who's also in communion with us, the Holy Spirit, who is the source of our strength and the source of our connectivity with God. And He's also, the Holy Spirit being within us, is also the force that empowers us, that transforms us, and that enables us to do the work of ministry. Without the Holy Spirit, there's no regeneration. You cannot be a Christian outside of the Holy Spirit of God. Without the Holy Spirit, there is no ministry because without that form of regeneration, there is nothing that you can do to please God. It is the duty and responsibility of the Holy Spirit as a person of the Godhead to change us, to transform us, to give us that new heart from the person that we were before Christ into the person that we were always created to be, a person in complete communion with God. The seven angels of the churches of Asia are, again, we, uh, we see the seven messengers. This, this, each star that he's holding, he identifies as the angels of these seven churches. The word angelos, literally meaning messenger. And these, both these images together emphasize his divine authority and the fact that he, as the king of the universe, is sending out his churches on a mission. What was that mission? There's the communion that we have with God, our relationship with Him. There's our devotion to God. There's our discipleship with God, under God, under Christ. And then, of course, there is the worship of God. But to put it in a more simple way, when Jesus, in the back of almost every gospel, there is a little key phrase that we refer to as the Great Commission, where He tells the disciples to go and... Make disciples, evangelize and teach. It's not good enough to just sit on your duffs. Do something. Go make disciple. So here are his concerns. He begins with the phrase, I know your works. This is the first place in the scriptures that we've covered so far where this is not necessarily a good thing. I know what you do. And just by a, just as a quick quiz, what did I skip over that we normally find in other letters to these churches? We went straight from the title that Christ chooses of Himself to His concerns. Yes, we're missing something good. There is nothing good that Jesus has to say about this church. He opens up with a concern. I know your works. Your works meaning the basic ministries of a local church. Our ministry to God through worship. Our ministry to each other through discipleship and fellowship. Our, our, our ministry to, the, to the, those who are in pain and the hopeless through missions. And our ministry to the lost through evangelism. So something in the works of the church is not being accomplished here. You have a reputation more literally, you have a name for yourself. You are alive. You have a reputation for being alive. Your history says that you were active. You were more literally among the living. Alternately, you could, you could say that he's telling them that there are these wonderful things that were said about you. Unfortunately, it's all hogwash because you are dead. Not that you're sick. Not that you're ailing. You are dead. 
Meaning that all those works, all that goodness that have been passed about around you, all those things that people are saying that you used to be good for, they've all ground to a halt. They've stopped. Your ministry is dead. Now, the different things that um, I've taken a look at, these were the explanations behind that phrase. Either it means that the quality of your ministries have declined and that you're just kind of coasting, that you're just playing church, that you come in, you're being all humdrum, you're going through the motions and you're going home. Or that you're emphasizing the wrong works, that you had this specific ministry and you've completely turned your back on it and gone in an opposite direction. That you're no longer devoted, that you're not, that, or that you're no longer working for God, period. That you've allowed yourselves to become worldly. That your own intentions, your own appetites, your own jobs have taken the place of, or your own sports have taken the place of the ministry of the local church. The church isn't a priority for you. You're no longer working for God. You're working for everything else but God. And you potentially also that you no longer have a devotion to God that our life with Him, that our life as a community of believers, we might meet once a week, but we come into the doors, we share some scripture, we sing some songs, we go home, and that's all we do, and that's the end of it. No real discipleship, and, and certainly no devotional life when we actually get home. Several ways that you can be dead. Any of these could be true in combination or maybe all at once. This is what Paul says. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed me, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to His good purpose. You have not been saved just so that you can be idle. We are saved with a purpose. We are set aside for a reason. When you come to know Christ in a free pardon of sin, when you are imbued with the Holy Spirit of God, sealed into the day of redemption, and then given the ability to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, the love, joy, peace, goodness, faithfulness, patience, self-control, all of those wonderful virtues that cannot be accomplished unless you're a Christian, sealed with the Holy Spirit. You have been set aside, Ecclesia, set the, the called out ones, you've been called out to do a function in the ministry of Christ. Now we've talked about tithing not only our financial resources, but also tithing our time, tithing our talents, tithing our work all of which is vital. It's not good enough to just come to church and leave and get your, and I hate this phrase, but it's the one I keep hearing used, the Jesus fix. In fact, if, if you come into a house, and I'll, I'll say house of God, and you sit down and you receive an emotional high, and you walk back out into the parking lot and you can't remember anything that was shared from the scripture, whose job it is to teach you, to raise you up, to nurture you, and to nourish you scripturally and spiritually. If you can't remember, then it's not worth it. 
And I hate to say it, but that's not a church. It's an emotional experience. But we are set aside for the purpose of ministry. The Apostle Peter, be sober-minded, be alert, be watchful. There's that word again. Remember, Jesus is hearkening back to this city's history. They left three sides of the square unguarded, unwatched. And not once, but five times listed, they were conquered because they kept making the same mistake, being inattentive. But Peter tells us, be sober-minded, be alert, be watchful for your adversary. The devil is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. This concept of being watchful is found all throughout this letter. And it's not just, it's not just sin, it's not just temptation that you have to be watchful for. The instruction that Jesus leaves us with is be alert or be watchful and strengthen that which remains. In other words, there's a remnant within this church that still has value in the sight of God. They're still performing the function of ministry. And Jesus is basically instructing them to be diligent in matters of the faith. Remember your accountability to Christ, who is our Savior and our Lord. A lot of people like to remember the first, but forget about the last. We owe Him our obedience. Be watchful against temptation and sin. There's the lion seeking to devour us, seeking to rob us of our testimony, of our joy, of our peace, of uh, anything that He can take from us. Even our faith, not our saving faith rather, but our ability to see Christ who is the solution of life's storms and instead focusing on the storm as well. Instead, excuse me. Be diligent against false teachers. Paul has a lot to say about that last one. Now this is stuff that Ephesus was getting right. Ephesus, if you'll remember, was the church that was very diligent about doctrine, but not diligent about devotion. It's a balance. Paul was uh, giving this talk before one of his departures. And I call your attention to it because he's, in a way, he's prophetically forecasting what it's going to be like, not only after he leaves this local church, but after, he, but after the time of the apostles altogether. I know after my departure, savage wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock, wolves in sheep's clothing. Men will rise up even from your own number and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. Therefore, be on the alert, be watchful again, remembering that night and day for three years I have never stopped warning each and every one of you with tears. Be watchful against false teachers. That's why in the Baptist faith we began, the first congregation that bore the name Baptist did not use the King James Bible, nor did they use an English translation. They were so diligent about biblical authority that the first two pastors, a gentleman by the name of John Smythe, S-M-Y-T-H, and a, another gentleman, um, 
forgive me, I'll, I'll just move on. But they were so diligent about focusing on the Word of God that they didn't even use a translation. They used Textus Receptus. They used the original text insofar as they were able to get a hold of them. And they taught their congregation Greek and Hebrew so that they could read it for themselves. As Baptists to this day, it's not good enough to just show up without your own. Have your own copy of the Word of God and use it. If there's anything in our heritage that we need to keep and we need to foster and we need to grow, it's a respect, an awe, and a reverence for the Word of God. Be watchful also for the coming of the King of Kings, which is something that, that we don't do very often. In fact, there is a crown of glory promised for the one who longs for Christ's appearing. Matthew 25, 13, the voice of Jesus tells us, be alert, be watchful again, because you don't know either the day or the hour. Another component of his instruction to this church was remember what you have received. And there are many things that we receive as part of being a member of the body of Christ. We receive the gospel, the good news of salvation, the story that includes the death, burial, and the resurrection of our Lord. We receive, through repentance, we receive grace and forgiveness of our sins. And through that forgiveness, we receive a relationship with God. And through that initial relationship with God, we are imbued with the Holy Spirit of God, the gift that seals us in the family of God. We become a regenerate person, meaning again, that text that David penned, created me a clean heart, O God, comes to pass each and every time that someone accepts Christ. And we also receive, as stated before, a personal mission and a personal purpose, which is divinely issued by God Himself. That's for everybody. There is no exception to that. You are a peculiar people. A royal priesthood. Each and every one of us have a mission for Him and are called to be a carrier with purpose. Repent or I will come like a thief. Repenting, again being a $40 word for changing direction. Return to your original devotion. Return to the works. Strengthen the people that remain. In fact, be like those that are actually doing the work of the church. We have a really bad habit in this day and age of having, a, have, having local churches where only 10% of the people do 95 plus percent of the job. Everybody in the local church should be a minister within that church. 100% of the people of the church need to do 100% of the job. That should not be an exception. That's biblical. You know what the scriptures call a church like that where 100% participate in the worship of ministry, or the work of ministry? Normal! If a church isn't like that, then the Bible calls it sick. This is a prime example. A church where people choose their own comforts, their own wants, their own desires, themselves as a priority over God and the mission to which they are called. 
Change direction or else your candlestick will be removed. I will come to you like a thief in the night. If your light isn't shining anyway, it is the purpose of the high priest who Jesus is to remove the candle, to remove the wick that isn't burning, and to replace it. And he again says that you will know, you have no idea at what hour the deadline will take place. He also says this though, your works are not complete. Pero, the word there from the Greek literally means crammed. And it can mean complete, it can actually mean perfect. But in this context, more likely it means either finished or that your duty is fulfilled. The image that it sets up is a cask that's supposed to be filled with olive oil, filled to the top so that it can be presented to the owner of it, the person that purchases it. So something about the work that this congregation is supposed to do has not yet been fulfilled, has not been completed. The image that Jesus is setting up is that the church's duty is to do the worship, do the evangelism, do the missions, do the discipleship as a living sacrifice of praise to Almighty God so that one day when it is declared perfect, it is ready to be presented by Christ on behalf of His bride, the church, to His Father who is the God of all creation. Just as in the Old Testament when we read about the bowls of sacrifice, these silver bowls that the different tribes of Israel were constructing so that they could be heaped full of fine flour as a grain offering to God. They had to be weighed so that exactly the proper amount could be presented to God as a sacrifice of praise. Your works are not yet complete. Jesus begins the promise of the overcomer with this startling announcement that even though he's declared this church dead, there are a few that remain. There is a faithful remnant within the congregation who have not defiled themselves. And that means that they have not, of course, participated in sin because he, as, he, as he says, they will walk in white, they will be robed in white because they are worthy of it, meaning that, uh, that they have not that they are pure. White is a symbol for purity. White is a symbol for righteousness and justice. They have not been defiled, meaning there's no stain upon them, meaning that they have not participated in whatever the sin is. Now note that sins can either be a committed sin or an omission of a good. As James 4.17 tells us, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does it not, to him it is counted as sin. So a lot of times, the less mature disciple of Christ will see not taking an action in the, in, in, the, uh, in the name of convenience as being okay in the sight of God because that wasn't something that I was commanded to do anyway, or at least I didn't sin. Well, got news for you. If you have an opportunity to do good in the name of God or to fulfill a blessing of God for somebody else, and you don't take advantage of it, it's a sin. If you have a ministry to do, if you have a job within the church to perform, and you don't, at least to the best of your ability, circumstances permitting, take the opportunity to be that blessing to God and to each other and to the world at large, 
then it's a sin. He who knows what to do, the right thing to do, and doesn't do it, to him it is counted as sin. And I'm uh, from the look of the text, this church is filled with sins of omission, chances for good, opportunities to do the right thing, the works that Christ is talking about that is not being done. Well, we'll get to that. In fact, we're about ready to talk about that right now. Uh, the term worthy, axios, literally translates into due reward. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean a good, is a good thing. Basically, you will be reimbursed for your works. I'll get to that in just a second. That's one of the ways that you can interpret it, is that if you are a sinner, you will receive the sinner's punishment. If you are someone who's found righteous because of the sacrifice of Christ, you will also receive the, receive the reward for the righteousness that God sees. Another way of interpreting that is to be deserving of something, or that you have been found to have value, or that... To, Vernon, uh, to, to your point, that you are found to be suitable, which I believe is the intended phrase for this word in this passage, that you are found to be, you're worthy in the fact, not that you have made yourself righteous, but worthy in the fact that you have been found to be suitable as a child of God. There's a difference. We, in Western eyes, tend to think of ourselves as wanting to, to make ourselves into something. Pick yourself up by your own boot, straps. But the Christian religion bucks up against that. The Christian religion basically says that you're not capable of being worthy, that nothing you ever do will be capable of being worthy on your own, that you can't work for it, that you cannot earn grace by definition, and that you can't do anything to increase the love of God for you, but you don't have to, because God loves you anyway. In fact, He loved you so much that the disease of sin genetically passed to you from the time of Adam down. God Himself developed the remedy. All you have to do is take it. So another way of, of phrasing it, in line with the way that Jesus is presenting it from the original Greek, is that you have been made worthy. You are found worthy because somebody else made, worthy, made you worthy. Who's the person who washes your garments white as snow? Jesus. You are found to be suitable. Because he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might in turn become the righteousness of God. As Paul describes, our sin was removed from our account and placed on Jesus at his crucifixion. 
And in its place, in the place of our sin, Jesus' righteousness was taken and placed on our account. So we have been made worthy. We have been found suitable, not because of anything that we did, but because we came to him for forgiveness. We came to him with a repentant heart. And because of the grace of God, that transaction took place in our lives. Does that answer your point? Does that work? Okay. You will walk with Christ in white raiment, meaning that you will be found innocent without spot or blemish because He declares us righteous before Almighty God. That our name is written in the book of life and cannot be removed. Your name will not be expunged because if it's found there, it cannot be expunged. And because of your faithfulness, you are also guaranteed that your name will be declared before God on the day of judgment and before His angels. But here's a chilling realization that comes to us from Scripture. Matthew 7, verse 21, Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And again, as we've talked about it, it is impossible for someone to do the will of God without the presence of the Holy Spirit of God. That's in the writings of Paul. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. Did we not do all this works? But it's not about works, it's about relationship. It's about repentance and the acceptance of grace. It's about the transforming presence of the Holy Spirit of God that gives us a personal, actual, true relationship with God. A speaking, face-to-face relationship with God. Because as Jesus continues on, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Not that you came to me once and I said no. Notice that's not in there. Not you had this test and you failed it, so get out of here. That's not in there. The only qualification that Jesus gives in this passage of Scripture for entering into the kingdom of God is knowing Him. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever what? Believes in Him, believes on Him, should not perish, but have everlasting light. He who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whosoever, I'm sorry. But to these who, who, who delude themselves by trying to work for it, by trying to make themselves justified without the relationship, who are all doctrine without devotion, who are all appearance without substance, just like the city itself. Appearance without substance. A gemstone without value. A fortress with no defenses. I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, you who work iniquity. Jesus also says, to kind of drive the point home about forgiveness and about calling upon the name of the Lord, anyone who confesses me before men, 
who confesses me before others, I will also confess them before my Father who is in heaven. This is an echo of the earlier promise made in Matthew 10. Really quickly by, and again, conjecturable. But if, if we carry on through the timeline of the church, prophetically speaking, this time and this, this point in the church's history would have to be the late medieval church prior to the Reformation. Now, there are some sources out there that claim, and I think that it's Schofield that's kind of driving all this, that claim that this is the Reformation church. So this is Robin's theology, take it or leave it. I won't um, take your birthday away if you disagree with me. But to me, these are the characteristics of this local church now on a global scale. If we look at the, the condition of the Western church prior to the Reformation of Martin Luther, the church at that time was distracted by politics and money instead of worship and devotion. It, was, it had disregarded biblical doctrine, personal devotion, and global evangelism. Its primary concern was within its own borders, within Europe, at this point in time. It would take the Jesuits in the Counter-Reformation to get what would become the Roman Catholic Church back into an evangelistic fervor, but that wouldn't happen until decades later. When, they, when, when their corruption was pointed out to them, when the sale of indulgences was pointed out to them, they used to be able to point to the monasteries and say, well, well, we have them over there that are all holy and pure and righteous and without fault because that's their job. But then you turn around and see that those very monks were taking bribes from local politicians that they were in charge of certain acts of service that became for a price that added to their, well, comforts. There were even quite a few that frequented brothels located close by their monasteries. This is not news. So the church lost its sense of devotion holistically. And they began, and this was the final straw, they began to ignore the effect of grace in someone's life by asking them to perform works, perform acts of service, and not real acts of service, but acts of servitude. Or they sold grace at a cost. The coin wherein the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs, was a sales slogan for the sales of indulgences in Great Britain during this time. This was a church that grew so concerned with being puffed up and being worldly making itself look good, that it became useless. to the kingdom of God. 
So that's the condition and the warning left to us by the church of Sardis. You have a name, you have a reputation, but I tell you that, that's, that you're dead. I need you to be watchful. I need you to be at the work, at the ready as well. I need you to be willing and able to do the work of ministry. Not just a few of you, not just this faithful remnant, but all of you that call yourselves Christians have to live up to that name, be Christ-like. And if you take that name of Christian, you have to know that it comes with an ambassadorship. If you take the name of Christ, do not make it vain. I'm not talking about a matter of vocabulary. I'm talking about personal conduct, conversation, and character that should always be in line with the person that saved us and who likewise called us to be in his ministry. So for next session, and for lot, I'd still like for you to read and read twice. Revelation 3, chapter seven, uh, verses 7 through 13, we're going to be looking at Philadelphia. We've spent time on the gloom and doom, and now we're going to see a, an example of a good church. But while you are looking at this church, again, read it twice, once at normal speed and once very slowly, and try to just see the idiom, see the word choices, possible symbols at play. Look for the distinctives in this church, what makes it different from the others? And I want you to ask yourself this as you're considering what to journal about and what to share with your groups. How important is it that a church loves? How important is it that a church loves? How important is it that a church shows love and demonstrates love to its members within the walls? as well as the visitors that come in after them. Welcoming, embracing, making them to feel like part of the family. How important is that? How important is it that the church is just flat out welcoming? Uh, I think most of you know that I had the, the blessing of being part of a, a, a tiny out of the way church that had a habit of, of hugging someone with a bone-crushing hug just as soon as shaking their hands. Good folks that considered everyone that walked through their doors like family. Is that the way that we're called to be? Reflect on your personal experiences, no matter what, with, when you've been within a church, and journal and talk about those in groups. So with that out of the way, any questions, comments, or anything from the comment section? If not, let's be dismissed. Heavenly Father, help us to be inspired by your word to action. To have our ears open to your vision for us as we continue to move forward to separate ourselves, to be able to die to self, to push our wants, our desires, and our personal attitudes out of the way so that we may fully embrace your mission and your way of accomplishing that mission. 
inspire us and compel us to action. Give us the wisdom and the strength to see that that action is taken, that that ministry is done with the excellence in which you would have it to do us, have us to do it, excuse me. Go with us now and, and give us a restful week and help us again to keep diving into your word, to learn more of its truth and to be transformed by that truth. In the most holy name of Christ we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from High Lawn Baptist Church. If you'd like to learn more about High Lawn Baptist Church or donate to our ongoing ministry, you can do so online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We believe that when you love God, you share His Word, and when you love others, you spread the gospel. We hope you enjoyed today's message and pray that you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.